Thanks for the kind introduction. Thank you as well for um, uh, allowing me. I, have to, I, I overbooked this weekend, so I, you're going to hear me twice tonight, which is uh, maybe not a great thing for you, um, especially after all the energy of the first talk. I'm not sure that I will compete. And I need to stay within the time allotted, and that's why I have a manuscript. I don't n normally rely on manuscripts as much uh, as I used to as a younger man, um, but to stay within the time, I know how long it takes to give something that's printed out as opposed to me rambling. Um, so, I, and I'd rather finish everything that I want to say, but I also think after that kind introduction that I still think it might be better for our wives or spouses to introduce us because you might get a different perspective. <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, this is the year the, the title of my talk is Machen in the Age to Come. Uh, this is the year of J. Grayson Machen. Since it's the 100th anniversary of arguably his most important book, Christianity and Liberalism. Just a, out of curiosity, how many people have read? Great, oh, that's great. It really, it's, it's, it's a wonderful book. And, and uh, I've been delighted to have to write and speak as much this year in the 100th anniversary, which I didn't see coming. I didn't expect this kind of um, attention to Machen and it's forced me to go back uh, in a pleasant way. I, I, I owe a great deal um, to Machen and uh, very delighted to have studied him while I was in graduate school. But <clears throat> as much attention as the author in his book may be receiving, for the sake of folks who may not know about him, let me start with a little bit of an introduction and also uh, to him and also the context for the book. Uh, the book is very much on point with the theme of the age to come and making all things new, since one of Machen's chief complaints about liberal theology was that it had lost sight of the spiritual realities uh, of this world for the sake of social advance through politics as well as through, dare I use the phrase, following the science. <clears throat> Born in 1881 to a prominent Baltimore family, his father was an accomplished attorney. His mother was a daughter of a Georgia businessman and politician. Machen rubbed shoulders with the progressive era's elites, both at his local Presbyterian congregation and at Johns Hopkins University, where he majored in classics and also completed a master's degree. Among the figures who attended church or were officers there and who studied at Johns Hopkins were Woodrow Wilson, future president of the United States, and Basil Gildersleeve, a first-rate classicist, many people don't know, but he really was a very prominent scholar at the time, and he was a regular family friend with the Machins. The Machin family also summered, vacationed in Seal Harbor, Maine, and there rubbed shoulders with influential members of the so-called Protestant establishment. And Machin was, at least by birth, a member of that uh, very elite group. After studying at Johns Hopkins, Machen attended Princeton Seminary, partly because he was uncertain about a career, which is what happens, I think, to a lot of seminarians. You go to seminary and figure it out. And when he saw a link between the study of the ancient world as a classicist and then the New Testament, he decided to become a biblical scholar. He did a year of advanced study in Germany before becoming, in 1906, an instructor at Princeton Seminary, and eight years later, he became a, a voting member of the faculty. <clears throat> Some frustration with an ivory tower existence 
prompted Machen to volunteer as a YMCA secretary during World War I, where he ran a canteen and led Bible studies among the troops on the front in France. There's a great collection of the letters that he was writing home during, that, the, during the war, if you're interested. Although Machen was skeptical about the, the nation's foreign policy, it leaned maybe a little bit too much toward Britain, uh, the war's brutality contributed to his uh, skepticism about Western civilization, especially its capacity, whether it could usher in the kingdom of God. Um, soon after returning from the war and writing a book on the Apostle Paul, and that book, The Origin of Paul's Religion, is really also very worth uh, reading if you haven't. Machen attended his first general assembly. I uh, hope I don't step on too many Baptist toes by talking about so many things Presbyterian. But uh, he witnessed there a church caught up in the exuberance of progressive democracy. <clears throat> Specifically, Machen heard a proposal for a union of America's largest Protestant denominations, and the union was designed to create a single American Protestant church similar to what would happen just a few years later with the United Church of Canada. The hope was to bring Protestants together to serve the nation and the world by creating a Christian social order. The plan drew upon 50 years of Protestant ecumenism and social gospel exhortation, the purpose of which was to save Christian culture amid the tumult of industrialization, economic inequality, and mass immigration. Machen objected to this ecumenism because it, it meant abandoning core Presbyterian convictions. He was also skeptical about the implications of Protestant unity for civil liberty and cultural pluralism in the United States. So he had religious and political objections to such, such ecumenism. Machen's theology and politics overall ran against the grain of American progressives schemes to build a better world. And it really is still to me amazing that Machen, having grown up in the elite world that he did, just by the way, and I'm probably gonna run out of time if I do this too many times, but when I lived in Baltimore going to graduate school at Johns Hopkins, um, I, sir, I had jury duty, I got summoned to jury duty. I, the, the room that I walked into in the courthouse building in Baltimore, there was a painting of, uh, a portrait of Machen's father, um, Arthur Machen, who was a prominent attorney in Baltimore. So Machen was in these circles, and he was really kind of lowering himself, abandoning his, his tribe to become involved in the church controversies the way he did. So with those historical pieces in place, <clears throat> what's a good way to think about Machen in the age to come? Here I want to shift to a brief point about a doctrine relatively familiar among American Presbyterians, but not always positively regarded. It's called the spirituality of the church. For detractors of this doctrine, the spirituality of the church was basically a cowardly retreat by American Presbyterians from political reform during the debates in the middle of the 19th century over slavery. The doctrine, as its defenders explained it, kept the church from taking political positions because the church as a spiritual institution, had spiritual means, words, sacraments, and, and prayer for spiritual ends. If the church were to take a side in a political contest among the Whigs, the Democrats, the Republicans, or the Free Soilers, she would be guilty of abandoning her proper responsibilities, namely discipling the nations 
through the proclamation of the word. As bad as this stance might look in hindsight, and as much as the motives of the advocates of this doctrine may have been mixed, the doctrine was hardly a novelty among Reformed Protestants, or Baptists for that matter. If you look at the Westminster Confession of Faith, hardly a document free from political circumstances, um, the the spirituality of the church is the default position for understanding the church in relationship to civil government. If you look at the chapter on the civil magistrate, there it reads, God, the supreme Lord and King of all the world, has ordained civil magistrates to be under him, over the people, for his own glory and the public good, and to this end has armed them with the power of the sword for the defense and encouragement of them that are good and for the punishment of evildoers, which is right out of the, the playbook of Romans 13, the magistrates are given by God to, to reward good and punish evil. The confession goes on, the civil magistrates may not assume to themselves the administration of the word or sa- and sacraments. So they can't do word and sacrament. Or the powers of the keys of the kingdom of heaven, that is church discipline. Magistrates can't do that. <clears throat> um, or in the least interfere with matters of faith, yet as nursing fathers... It is a duty of magistrates to protect the church of our common Lord without giving the preference to any denomination of Christians above the rest in such a manner that all ecclesiastical persons, whatever, shall enjoy the full, free, and unquestioned liberty of discharging every part of their sacred functions. Now, I should also alert you, that's the American revision of the Westminster Confession of Faith. That's not what the Westminster Divines did, but... Notable figures like John Witherspoon, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, was responsible for that revision to the American, um, to the Westminster Confession. And it's clear there that the civil magistrate doesn't have spiritual duties. The civil magistrate has civil and political duties. Now, if you contrast this with what the Westminster Confession says about the church, there it reads, the visible church, which is also Catholic or universal, under the gospel, which means not confined to one nation, as before under the law with Israel. This visible church consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. And if you're not a church member, you should feel a little heat there. You should be a member of a church. It doesn't have to be Presbyterian, but it should be a church that proclaims the word. So the church in this, in this understanding is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. It has no borders, and yet it's still a kingdom. And then it goes on to explain how the kingdom comes. It's not through force, coercion, law, or policy. The confession reads, Under this Catholic visible church, Christ has given the ministry, oracles, and ordinances, excuse me, ordinances of God for the gathering and perfecting of the saints in this life to the end of the world, and does by his own presence and spirit, according to his promise, make them effectual thereunto. Now, what magistrate could possibly say that the spirit of God is going to use his or her policies to advance the kingdom of God? And then later in the confession, it also says, when it comes to the chapter on synods and councils, which is something that Presbyterians do have, uh, synods and councils are to handle or conclude nothing but that which is ecclesiastical and are not to intermeddle with civil affairs which concern the commonwealth 
unless by way of humble petition. So there's a clear distinction in the Westminster Confession between ecclesiastical affairs and civil affairs. And if you get that distinction, which is sort of going all the way back to Jesus, render to God, render to Caesar, although it means that there's a lot more that could be said about this. The spirituality of church is basic. It's just simple. It's not that hard to understand. <clears throat> so the church is a spiritual institution, and therefore it should stay out of civil affairs. And the reason is not because politics are controversial and ministers don't want to alienate church members. It's not because the church should avoid aggravating political uh, conflicts that could disrupt, disrupt the good order of society. The reason instead is that the church has a mission that is inherently spiritual, not political, and it's way more important what the church does than what civil government does, as necessary and important as civil government is. So one way to illustrate <clears throat> how the spirituality of the church played out for Machen, and please do not lose hope, I've not given up on the theme of the conference, but it is to think about how the spirituality of the church had repercussions for Machen in his own lifetime, especially in 1926 when he was up for promotion at Princeton Seminary. Uh, we need to recall that since 1906, Machen had taught New Testament at Princeton and distinguished himself as the foremost conservative biblical scholar of his generation through books on Paul and the virgin birth of Christ. Yet the field of apologetics, was he, which is what he was being promoted to, that was what the um, proposal was, was not foreign, apologetics was not foreign to Machen as evidenced by his book, Christianity and Liberalism, a work that forcefully defended traditional Christianity. Nevertheless, what made Machen's nomination to the chair of apologetics was unusual, was the opposition it aroused. <clears throat> The election and promotion of any Princeton professor still to this day requires the confirmation by the Presbyterian Church's General Assembly. This step in the process was usually a formality. In the seminary's history, no nominee had been vetoed. A different fate awaited Machen. The 1926 General Assembly received a report that Machen questioned, sorry, a report that questioned Machen's qualifications because of his attitude toward prohibition. And I, you may remember that episode in American politics when there was, there, you could not buy or sell or distribute alcohol between 1919, I believe, and 1933. <clears throat> um, at an earlier meeting of his presbytery that, that uh, spring, he had voted against a resolution that endorsed the 18th Amendment. Machen had not wanted his vote to be recorded because he knew his opposition was unpopular. Prohibition enjoyed widespread support as an effort to retain the Protestant char character of America in an era that saw unprecedented, the unprecedented surge of non-Protestant immigration in America. <clears throat> um, and it's important to remember, too, that. Prohibition was as much supported by mainline or liberal Protestants as it was by fundamentalists. It was not any kind of division between liberals and conservatives. <clears throat> um, Machen's opposition to prohibition was the major reason for the General Assembly's failure to conform, confirm his nomination. According to one of his closest friends, the General Assembly was rabidly prohibitionist 
and would have vetoed his election had it come to the floor. In fact, Machen's nomination was tabled in committee and the assembly went on to adopt a resolution that opposed any modification of prohibition legislation. Machen explained that while the Bible is clear in condemning drunkenness, it is not clear about government policy regarding the production, distribution, and cons consumption of alcohol. He insisted that he was opposed to the abuse of alcohol. But Machen also doubted whether federal law was a wise way to address the, address the moral and social problem. As a states' rights Democrat who favored the sovereignty of local government, he opposed the 18th Amendment because it consolidated too much power at the federal level. Yet the Presbyterian Church, which at this time was broadening its theology, embraced prohibition as part of God's divine plan. <clears throat> as a libertarian, Machen distinguished strictly the nature of the involuntary associations like the state, you're born into it, you don't choose to be a citizen anymore, you distinguish that from the voluntary associations like the church. Such a distinction allowed him to argue for tolerance in society and intolerance in the church. Since no one had to belong to the church, especially ministers who would go through training and take vows to uphold the church's teaching. According to Machen, the state was an involuntary organization whose duty was to protect the freedom of all individuals, families, and other private associations. In fact, because the state represented the interests of all citizens, it was an interference with civil liberty for it to prescribe any one opinion, including Christian opinions. The church, in contrast, as a legal entity, was a voluntary organization composed of individuals who united for the special purpose of proclaiming the gospel. Because no one was forced to join the church, the principle of religious liberty was not violated by requiring ministers and church officers to conform to theological standards. In fact, the activity of individuals organizing for such a religious purpose as the church was one of the rights guaranteed by the U.S. Constitution. The church's intolerance was simply a manifestation or expression of civil liberty, which is actually really kind of intriguing way to think about. The more conservative doctrinal and exclusive churches are, the more they're actually embodying what America at least used to stand for. <clears throat> and here I want to uh, read from some of Machen's uh, reasoning that he explained. This was never published until, I'm not trying to promote myself, um, but I, I did edit a collection of Machen's essays. And this, this um, statement that he made was never published until that collection came out. One of the reasons why it was never published in his day, because again, he, his friends thought it would get him in more trouble if he actually made a statement. So it was just kind of maybe see if the controversy will blow over. But, but in that uh, statement, Machen said this, in the first place, no one has a greater horror of the evils of drunkenness than I or a greater detestation of any corrupt traffic which is sought to make profit out of this terrible sin. Remember, the sin is drunkenness, not necessarily consuming. It is clearly the duty of the church to combat this evil. With regard to the exact form, however, in which the power of the civil government is to be used in this battle, there may be a difference of opinion. Zeal for temperance, for example, would hardly justify an order that all drunkards should be butchered. 
The end in that case would not justify the means. Some men hold that the 18th Amendment and Volstead Act are not a wise method of dealing with the problem of intemperance, and that indeed those measures in the effort to accomplish moral good are really causing moral harm. I am not expressing any opinion on this question now and did not do so by my vote in the Presbytery. But I do maintain that those who hold the view that I have just mentioned have a perfect right to their opinion so far as the law of our church is concerned and should not be coerced in any way by ecclesiastical authority. The church has a right to exercise discipline where authority for condemnation of an act can be found in scripture, but it has no such right in other cases. And certainly scripture authority cannot be found in the particular matter of the 18th Amendment. No kidding. <clears throat> Moreover, the church I hold, he goes on, ought to refrain from entering in its corporate capacity into the political field. And then he goes on to, qu to quote from the Westminster Confession of Faith from the 1640s. Synods and councils are to handle or conclude nothing but that which is ecclesiastical and are not to meddle with civil affairs which concern the commonwealth. And it goes on. But Machen went right to the, that part of the confession, which you might think would be uh, useful in a Presbyterian context. <clears throat> but then he goes on to say the section, um, goes on to say about the church, in making of itself, moreover, in so many instances, primarily an agency of law enforcement, and thus engaging in the duties of the police, which is what you're doing with law enforcement, the church, I am constrained to think, is in danger of losing sight of its proper function, which is that of bringing to bear upon the human soul the sweet and gracious influences of the gospel. Important, indeed, are the functions of the police, and members of the church in their capacity as citizens should aid by every proper means within their power in securing the discharge of those functions. But the duty of the church in its corporate capacity is of a quite different nature. So again, the church is bringing the kingdom of God through spiritual means. The civil power is restraining evil for public order. And that's an important distinction in the way that Machen thought about this particular issue. So this idea that the church's mission is something different from politics and even more important than civil affairs, as important as they are, was almost everywhere on display in what Machen, many regard as Machen's most important book, Christianity and Liberalism. People who haven't read the book may be surprised to hear that Christianity and Liberalism affirms and explains the spirituality of the church since Machen begins in the introduction, in the introduction with an appeal to politics. To be fair, this is a section where Machen is reading the room of American readers, knows that many people reading may not be members of churches and may not even give a fig about Christianity. And so he tries to give them reasons to keep reading. For example, to those who had already settled the questions of science versus religion, Machen asked them if they were so sure that following the science had actually created as great a world as its proponents alleged. Here Machen wrote, scientific investigation, as has already been observed, has certainly accomplished much. It has in many respects produced a new world. But there is another aspect of the picture which should not be ignored. The modern world represents in some respects an enormous improvement over the world in which our ancestors lived, but in other respects it exhibits a lamentable decline. 
The improvement appears in the physical conditions of life, but in the spiritual realm, there is corresponding loss. The loss is clearest, perhaps, in the realm of art. Despite the mighty revolution, which has been produced in the external conditions of life, no great power, poet, excuse me, no great poet is now living to celebrate the change. Humanity has suddenly become dumb. Gone too are the great painters and the great musicians and the great sculptors. Now, that might get him in trouble with some people who do the history of art and literature, but still, there's an intriguing point here that people weren't necessarily celebrating these modern scientific and industrial achievements. But if you say that this is, po this is not politics, you would be right, but it was connected to changes in public policy that for the sake of science ignored other parts of human nature and experience beyond health, whether personal or public. And here's how Machen explained that. The whole development of modern society, he's writing again, this is 100 years ago. The whole development has tended mightily toward the limitation of the realm of freedom for the individual man. The tendency is most clearly seen in socialism. A socialistic state would mean the reduction to a minimum of the sphere of individual choice. Labor and recreation under, under a socialistic government would be both prescribed and individual liberty would be gone. I can't help but thinking about the lockdowns while reading this. But the same tendency exhibits itself today even in those communities where the name of socialism is most abhorred. When once the majority has determined that a certain regime is beneficial, that regime without further hesitation is forced ruthlessly upon the individual man. It never seems to occur to modern legislatures that although welfare is good, forced welfare is, may be bad. In other words, utilitarianism is being carried out to its logical conclusions in the interests of physical well-being. The great principles of liberty are being thrown ruthlessly to the winds. So there's Machen's civil libertarianism again, and it is the sort of argument by which he judged prohibition. <clears throat> but another place to see Machen affirmed the spirituality of the church came in the chapter was, that was the heart of the book. Here we need to remember that as much as people identified Machen with fundamentalism, his critique of liberalism was in a different class of arguments. Yes, I would say much better. In contrast to other fundamentalists who objected to evolution or liberal theologians denying the literal second coming of Christ, Yes, creation and end times were the most popular topics in fundamentalist writings. Machen saw that liberal theology was most vulnerable on the doctrine of salvation. His book followed the traditional categories of systematic theology, God, man, scripture, Christ, salvation, and the church. The shortest and longest chapters are revealing. As much as he believed and defended the doctrine of inerrancy of the Bible, his chapter on scripture was the shortest in the book. In contrast, the longest chapter was the one on salvation, and in it he discussed at length for almost 15 pages the doctrine of, of the vicarious atonement. Listen, for example, to the start of Machen's defense of the atonement. He doesn't claim merely that it is biblical or confessional. He argues that Christianity offers no hope of salvation without it. Machen writes, the difference with regard to the way of salvation concerns in the first place the basis of salvation in the redeeming work of Christ. According to Christian belief, Jesus is our savior, not by virtue of what he said, 
not even by virtue of what he was, but by what he did. He is our Savior not because he has inspired us to live the same kind of life that he lived, but because he took upon himself the dreadful guilt of our sins and bore it instead, on, instead of us on the cross. Such is the Christian conception of the cross of Christ. It is ridiculed as being a subtle theory of the atonement. In reality, it is a plain teaching of the word of God. We know absolutely nothing about an atonement that is not a vicarious atonement, for that is the only atonement of which the Bible speaks. And this Bible doctrine is not intricate or subtle. On the contrary, though it involves mystery itself, too so simple that a child can understand it, we deserved eternal death, but the Lord Jesus Christ, because he loved us, died instead of us on the cross. Surely there is nothing so very intricate about that. It is not the Bible doctrine of atonement, which is difficult to understand. What are really incomprehensible are the elaborate modern efforts to get rid of the Bible doctrine in the interests of human pride. So it turned out that Machen's defense of the atonement was crucial to the one place in the book where he sounded the most spirituality of the churchish. That is, warning against the church becoming involved in politics or social activism. For instance, when he described the Apostle Paul's denunciation of the Judaizers in Galatia, sometimes also known as the Circumcision Party, and boy, would that be a great party to go to. (laughs) He directly chastised as well his, his own Presbyterian peers, who in the name of saying doctrine divides, ministry unites, were putting the well-being of the nation ahead of the proclamation of the gospel. Machen wrote, what is, was the difference between the teaching of Paul and the teaching of the Judaizers? What was it that gave rise to the stupendous polemic of the book of the Galatians? To the modern church, the difference would have seemed to be merely theological subtlety. About many things, the Judaizers were in perfect agreement with Paul. The Judaizers believed that Jesus was the Messiah. There is not a shadow of evidence that they objected to Paul's lofty view of the person of Christ. Without the slightest doubt, they believed that Jesus had really risen from the dead. They believed, moreover, that faith in Christ was necessary to salvation. But the trouble was they believed that something else was also necessary. They believed that what Christ had done needed to be pieced out by the believer's own efforts to keep the law. From the modern point of view, the difference would have seemed to be very slight. Paul, as well as the Judaizers, believed that the keeping of the law of God in its deepest import is inseparably connected with faith. The difference concerned only the logical, not even perhaps the temporal, order of three steps. Paul said that first, a man believes on Christ, second, is justified before God, and then third, immediately proceeds to keep God's law. The Judaizers said that a man, one, believes on Christ, two, keeps the law of God as best he can, and then three, is justified. The differences would seem to modern practical Christians to be a highly subtle and intangible matter, hardly worthy of consideration at all in the view of large measure of agreement in the practical realm. And hear this. What a splendid cleaning up of the Gentile cities it would have been if the Judaizers had succeeded succeeded in extending to those cities the observance of the Mosaic law, even including the unfortunate ceremonial observances. Surely Paul 
ought to have made common cause with the teachers who were so nearly in agreement with him, surely he ought to have applied to them the great principle of Christian unity. End of quote. <clears throat> Those unfamiliar with the history of the ecumenical movement in the U.S. may have missed Machen's bank shot in that quotation. Not only did he raise questions about the church cleaning up cities by adding splendid for ironic effect, he also included Christian unity in his critique. The reason was that the social gospel, cleaning up cities, went hand in hand with Christian unity. The question of the day for Protestants was how can the we unite to preserve America as a Christian nation. And yes, there were Christian nationalists well before the past two years. <clears throat> the question that drove, that was the question that drove Protestant interdenominational and ecumenical efforts from 1870 to 1920 and long after that. And to achieve institutional unity, Protestant leaders understood that they could not maintain the doctrinal or creedal standards of their respective churches. In the case of Presbyterians, the revision of the Westminster Confession in 1903 were designed to, to shave away some of the harder angles of Calvinism. But this revision also set up a church union with the Cumberland Presbyterian Church, which in turn facilitated the formation of the Federal Council of Churches in 1908. And the Cumberland Presbyterian Church was, by the way, an Arminian Presbyterian communion. If that isn't too oxymoronic. <laughs> the Federal Council's first achievement was another piece of evidence to underscore how much ecumenism and the social gospel went hand in hand. The first major act of the Federal Council was to write and affirm the social creed of the churches, a roughly 15-point list of declarations about industrial policy and economic conditions in the United States. The creed was only two steps removed from the Progressive Party's platform. So this is something that's really deeply seated in American Protestantism of the time. So for all of Christianity and liberalism's, the book's attention to doctrine generally and to the Reformed doctrine of salvation specifically, the book was a shot across the bow at Presbyterian leaders who were taking the denomination away from its historical theological historic theological and pastoral commitments in order to enter into the generic world of Protestant transformationalism. Yet for all of the aid <clears throat> the book gave to those resisting liberalism in the Presbyterian Church, Machen could be even more explicit about the spirituality of the church as the way the Christian ministry prepared believers in this age for the age to come. And here I'm going to quote from the, uh, an, uh, an address that Machen gave to the graduating class of Westminster Seminary in 1931. <clears throat> Remember this, he says to the graduating students, the things in which the world is now interested are the things that are seen, but the things that are seen are temporal, and the things that are not seen are eternal. You as ministers of Christ are called to deal with the unseen things. You are stewards of the mysteries of God you alone can lead men by the proclamation of God's word out of the crash and jazz and noise and rattle and smoke of this weary age. Into the green pastures and beside the still waters, he still, he still makes me a little verklempt, 
You alone, as ministers of reconciliation, can give what the world, with all its boasting and pride, can never give, the infinite sweetness of the communion of the redeemed soul with the living God. That is the spirituality of the church. This theme, the sweetness of the communion between a believer and the living God, was also the way that Machen concluded Christianity and liberalism. If someone ever wanted, wondered if the age to come was a theme in Machen's reflections on the significance of the gospel, the best place to look arguably is in the final chapter of that important book. There he directly contrasts the affairs of this world with the true believer's longing for the world to come when things will, all things will be new. Wanted to make sure that wasn't me. <laughs> Machen says at the end of this book, the situation before the church is dire. The present is a time not for ease or pleasure, but for earnest and prayerful work. A terrible crisis unquestionably has arisen in the church. In the ministry of evangelical churches are to be found hosts of those who reject the gospel of Christ. By the equivocal use of traditional phrases, by the representation of differences of opinion, as though they were only differences about the interpretation of the Bible, entrance into the church was secured for those who are hostile to the, sorry, hostile to the very foundations of the faith. And now there are some indications that the fiction of conformity to the past is to be thrown off and the real meaning of what has been taking place is to be allowed to appear. So Machen was tired. This was 1923. He would continue fighting liberalism in the church for another 13 years. I can't believe that. And they died. I mean, he would have continued to fight had he not died at the end of that period. So he looked for sustenance at the end of the book. And where would he look for sustenance? There he wrote, there must be somewhere groups of redeemed men and women who can gather together humbly in the name of Christ to give thanks to him for his unspeakable gift and to worship the Father through him. Such groups alone can satisfy the needs of the soul. At the present time, there is one longing of the human heart which is often forgotten. It is the deep, pathetic longing of the Christian for fellowship with his brethren. One hears much, it is true, about Christian union and harmony and cooperation. But the union that is meant is often a union with the world against the Lord, or at best, a forced union of machinery and tyrannical committees. How different is the true unity of the spirit in the bond of peace? <clears throat> Sometimes it is true the longing for Christian fellowship is satisfied. There are congregations, even in the present age of conflict, that are really gathered around the table of the crucified Lord. There are pastors that are pastors indeed. But such congregations in many cities are difficult to find. Weary with the conflicts of the world, one goes into the church to seek refreshment for the soul. <clears throat> and what does one find? Alas, too often one finds only the turmoil of the world. The preacher comes forward not out of a secret place of meditation and power, not with the authority of God's word permeating his message, not with human wisdom pushed far into the background by the glory of the cross, but with human opinions about the social problems of the hour or easy solutions of the vast problem of sin. Such is the sermon. And then... <laughs> Perhaps the service is closed by one of those hymns breathing out the angry passions of 1861, which are to be found in the back part of the hymnal. I don't think Machen was a fan of the Battle Hymn of the Republic. 
Thus the warfare of the world has entered in, even into the house of God, and sad indeed is the heart of man who has come seeking peace. But then finally, the last paragraph of the book. Is there no refuge from strife? Is there no place of refreshing where a man can prepare for the battle of life? Is there no place where two or three can gather in Jesus' name to forget for the moment all those things that divide nation from nation and race from race, to forget for the moment, um, to forget human pride, to forget the passions of war, to forget the puzzling problems of industrial strife, and to unite in overflowing gratitude at the foot of of the cross. If there be such a place, then that is the house of God and that the gate of heaven. And from under the threshold of that house will go forth a river that will revive the world. To say anything after that mic drop moment in the book, I think, is actually at best anticlimactic. But it is important to see that the mainline churches were going in this direction of a social Christianity. And Machen objected and stood up and fought that fight for at least 16 years. And one way to put the difference between Machen and his liberal foes was that liberal Protestants forgot about the world to come. They were concerned about the world here and now. And there are many things to be concerned about. And I'll talk about that the next hour. But how to save people here and now from ignorance, hunger, cold, war, sickness, and bad housing is not what the church is called to do. The church is called to do something more important. So Machen reminded the Protestant churches of their historic and biblical priorities. And as one of his fellow Baltimoreans uh, said, um, H.L. Mencken, Machen lost the debate but he was right.